Coming up on Security Now, I'm Tom Merritt filling in one last time for Leo Laporte after a couple of weeks of absence, but we got some great stuff to talk about. We're going to be following the continuing saga of John McAfee. Also, NASA may be providing a good example to the rest of government and how to keep your nuclear facility safer. All that and more coming up. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 379, recorded November 21st, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 155. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring available sync. Now you can control your media player with simple voice commands. Enjoy your drive while you easily search and listen to your favorite songs. Check it out on the 2012 Ford Focus and at Ford.com technology. It's time for Security Now, the show that tries to keep you safe online. I'm a little sad because it's uh, my last week filling in for Leo Laporte. I'm Tom Merritt and, uh, of course, joined by Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Steve, it's great to have one last uh, shot at hosting Security Now with you this week. Well, now, if you it went after you move down closer to me, but really still not close enough that it's practical for us to, you know, get together for yeah. a show... And Leo's gone in the future. Would it still work for like us to be connected together up at central headquarters? So I don't. That- I don't see why not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. There's hope for the future. <laughs> right. Uh, we got some great stuff to talk about today. Of course, it's a it's a question and answer show, uh, so yep. we have got lots of good questions. We'll also uh, we're going to dig deep into Mozilla. Firefox version 17. We got, got a lot of stuff to, to talk about there. I guess not dig deep, but there's there's a lot of updates and, there. And somehow, coming to you direct from Belize, uh, John McAfee is still managing to post a blog. And I, I tweeted a link to what he posted two days ago. Uh, and But, you know, we have a, an audio podcast and people are commuting and jogging and gardening and doing whatever they're doing. So I'm going to share... Two days ago, the increasingly bizarre story of John McAfee, who everyone knows as the antivirus person, uh, now not so much. Yeah, it's 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 a, a movie, maybe a made-for-TV movie, but it's a movie in the making. What, what's going on with that guy? It's kind of yeah. kind of ridiculous. We're going to get to all that in a second, but I want to start off by thanking our sponsor, Ford. Featuring Sync's versatile entertainment features such as browsing. You can browse your collection by genre, album, artist, playlist, or song title. All using voice commands. That's the thing about Ford Sync. You are driving. You've got your hands on the wheel. You're looking at where you're going in the traffic. And you don't have to put yourself in an inconvenient position because you want to browse through your music collection. Or let's say you're, you're just listening to some music. You're like, yeah, I want more of this. I want more of this jazz. Play similar music. You just say it. And Ford Sync will play that similar music for you. You can uh, listen to entertainment on almost any device. Uh, Voice-activated control for your smartphone by Bluetooth. 
uh, from a USB drive. Just fill it up with your favorite music or, or any MP3 player, uh, iPod. I, you can plug an iPad in there as well. And iTunes tagging. So if you're listening uh, to HD radio on sync with my Ford Touch and you hear a song you like, you don't have to try to remember it or, or even worse, try to write it down while you're driving. Forget that. Tag the song you like, transfer that info to your iPod, and then you can purchase the song later from the iTunes store when you're off the road. Best of all, Ford offers sync on every 2012 or 2013 Ford vehicle sold in the United States of America, including the 2012 Ford Focus. You can learn more about this and other technologies Ford is bringing to its vehicles at Ford.com technology. And we thank them so much for their support. All right, Steve, let's uh, start off. What, what, what's good to know about in the latest of the, the faster and faster releases of Firefox? <laughs> it's funny, too, because it just was not that long ago that we were at version 3 and version 4. And now we have version 17. So, I, I mean, and there were complaints from the industry, that is the users of Firefox, that, that they seem to have a much too slow release cycle and so they've changed that. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. We are getting improvements out faster. We, we know that having competition is good. And I think they probably now see Chrome from Google as their primary competition rather than IE, even though IE technically still has greater than 50% of the overall market share. You know, Firefox is the alternative, as is, as is Chrome. Of course, Chrome is continuing to come on very strong. Um, one of the things that happened in version 17, which was released, I think, like yesterday. Um, yeah, I think, I think it just, I, I saw the alert pop up to get it. I haven't actually updated it yet. Yeah, it just, it just did. And when I went over to, uh, un, under help to check, you know, like help about, it said, oh, you know, we have an, a new uh, update. It was 9.9 meg, I think. And so it sucked it down. It was compatible with all of my add-ons. So it was a painless uh, transfer. It's, for me at least... It wasn't happening automatically. That's that's promised. And I had to do a full restart, which meant that all of my 80 tabs, that's eight zero tabs, needed to get flushed and reloaded. But, you know, that, and, and I also saved a bunch of memory because it still seems to sort of accumulate memory over time. But um, but that's that problem is way better than it used to be, like back in version 4. They really have spent some time on memory. In this case, they've moved their so-called click-to-play feature, which we have talked about before, which has been in beta. It's now at release. So it appeared finally in this current um, uh, main release stream of Firefox. Um, And what that does is it's their newest solution for dealing with vulnerable or outdated plugins. So... Plugins that the browser recognizes as no longer the most recent and or vulnerable, the browser will block their execution so that they don't just automatically run um, until the user clicks on it. So the idea is just it's not to, you know, not to shut them down completely. That would that the Mozilla folks feel that would be a little, you know, overreaching, but but not to have. For example, them just automatically take off and run. Um, they um, uh, they they posted back on October 11th when this was um, in uh, in beta. They said plugins that are blocked with the click to play flag will not load that is onto the page by default. 
but can be easily activated by users. This gives us a more user-friendly way to warn about plugins that should be updated. That that gives users better control over their browsing experience. The large-scale plugin update notification we deployed last week, and this is back in, so this would have been earlier in October that they're referring to, used the old update notification mechanism for Firefox 16 and prior, and the new click-to-play mechanism for Firefox 17 and above. So this is where they were beginning to roll this out and, and test this for about a month and a half. And they said, if you have old versions of Flash, Adobe Reader, or Silverlight, and you're on version 17, you will now see the click-to-play block next time you visit a page that uses one of these plugins. Now, again, I guess it's, it's that I haven't been to Silverlight, and I'm not using Adobe Reader um, any longer. I moved away from that. Um, but So I haven't, I've not seen this behavior in 17, um, and I don't know when the browser will update itself for people who don't go and get it. But if you're curious, by all means, just go to the help about box and that'll sort of wake it up and say, oh, look, there's something new here for you. So I, I just tried that actually on this machine uh, yep. uh, and it didn't, <laughs> it didn't do it. This is, this is on Ubuntu, though. So that's that, that may be a, a different kind of behavior, but I, I couldn't couldn't make it tell me. Well, it up. yeah. And also, if you go to if you go to the add ons tab in Firefox, it'll list all of the add-ons that you've got. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, plugins, the plugins tab. There's a link at the top that you can click to check to see if any of your plugins are old. Mm-hmm. I did that, and it gives you a, it does a very nice test, gives you a nice list sorted from vulnerable and bad to, to um, okay and then unknown, sort oh, of yeah, are grayed nice. out. The problem is... It was showing me that that Adobe's Flash needed to be updated. So then I went over to adobe.com slash Flash where you can check the version and the Flash player ran with a little bouncing red square or oh, cube. And yeah. So it's like, okay, well, this doesn't really seem to be working yet. So Or, <laughs> or maybe it needs to be turned on or My something. My Shockwave but, Flash says it's up to date when I'm looking at it right now. Okay. But again, that's under Linux, so... Yes, that may yes. be true. I, in fact, I think it is true. Well, so another new feature that I looked around to to try to explain what this was to myself and to our audience, but they're saying that their first revision of the quote social API and support for Facebook Messenger is now in Firefox 17. There's no sign of it in any of the user interface, um, so it's unclear exactly what it is. But it appears to be about allowing the browser to post links to the user's previously configured social media accounts. Okay. So you would you would somehow, you know, register yourself like your Facebook page with, you know, or your Facebook account with Firefox. And then what they're trying to do is to to create some sort of a of a more seamless, lower friction interconnection to make it like you know you right click on a link and then say like you know post to my facebook page and it just does it through some sort of 
API of some sort. So anytime anyway, Facebook I'm, comes up, though, I have a hundred questions about how it, wor- how it works. So I'm interested <laughs> yes. to see that too. And then they have a handful of of you know sort of just updates. And the awesome bar gets larger icons. They drop support for Mac OS 10 uh, version 10.5. They they are now supporting an important attribute that's defined in the HTML5 spec, and the, it's, a, it's a formal W3C spec. Um, I think it's Chrome and Safari have already been supporting it, and and Opera and Firefox and IE don't, but now Firefox does, and um, and the page that I went to see what where, where the support stood hadn't yet been updated because it was just yesterday mm-hmm. but that's that's a new attribute in the infamous iframe tag in HTML to remind our listeners iframe is a widely exploited problem in HTML only because it's so powerful essentially an iframe i stands for inline and so it essentially allows you to embed another web page inside of the current web page. You can create a, a region on the web page and load that with a URL using the iframe tag. And, so you, and the problem is it's, it's powerful, but it's dangerous. There have been all kinds of ways that have been found to exploit this, this power – and so the new the new spec or the new the Firefox's new support of the so-called sandbox attribute um, allows the browser to essentially sandbox the iframe tag. Mm. If you simply put the phrase sandbox equals and then a null string open quote close quote with, with, with nothing in it, then that enables a new set of extra restrictions. For the content of the inline frame, um, and then if you wish to deliberately, as the as the author of the page, if you wish to relax those those protections, the sandboxing restrictions, you can then add some some allow verbs in that double quoted expression. So, for example, if it's empty, then all restrictions are applied. And those restrictions are, for example, if you if you if you had allow same origin as you know, inside the double quotes, then that would allow the iframe content to be treated as being from the same origin as the containing document. And of course, that's that's risky because it's same origin protection, which protects us from all of the cross site hacks which right. people have come up with over time. Um, or you can say allow top navigation, which allows the iframe content to to load content from the containing document. So that sort of gives it visibility outside of its own frame, which, again, could be useful, but <laughs> use that with caution. Um, then you could also say allow forms, which another dangerous thing to do. But so the point is, if you don't put allow forms in, then forms will not function in the iframe. And that's been another source of real exploitation in the past. And finally, allow scripts, where you have to explicitly allow scripting by, if, if you use the sandbox tag, 
then it will turn scripting interpretation on within that frame. So this is a nice move forward, and now we just need to get Opera and IE to support it. And then, of course, we, it, it, since it doesn't just happen automatically, you don't get any of that protection unless you add the sandbox tag with a null string. So then we need everybody who's using iframes to update their own code to put that in, and we'll get, you know, more safe pages. So, so, that, so this is not a, a browser user protection. This is a page creator protection to say, look, you don't want your page to get hacked you, through an iframe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, exactly. This is an authoring protection. And there are so many pages now which are based on templates they, like, for example, most of the online forums where you, you know, that have a very common standardized look, it's very easy then to modify the templates wherever they use an iframe just to add the sandbox tag. And suddenly throughout the entire forum site, that sandbox tag will appear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you want to be careful how you use it because you don't want to break, break things that, that rely on, on iframe features. But you also... You want, you want to always restrict everything that you're not actually using. So this is just a good move forward. And, and as you say, it'll take some while for it to get adopted, but ultimately I expect it will be. So that's a nice thing. And then they also, with version 17, they made it faster. And they say 20, you know, more than 20 performance improvements. And then there was apparently some problems they were having with page scrolling on sites with fixed headers, which version mm. 17 of Firefox fixes. So, all right, good. you know, all around, nice, solid update. From now, th- these, are, these are exciting updates, uh, but they are not nearly as exciting as the saga of John <laughs> McAfee, which we've sort okay. of been following now. <laughs> now, if this were a podcast on April 1st, we might be accused of, you know, making this whole thing up. Nobody believe us. You're right. Yeah. So get a load of this, listeners. This is two days ago, posted on November 19th on John McAfee's blog. And by the way, anyone can check it for prior and subsequent postings. Earlier ones exist and later ones exist. This site is www.whoismcafee.com. So w h o i s m c a f e e dot com, and that and if you just do www.whoismcafee.com, that takes you to the the sort of the main page of the blog, which will show everything current. If you scroll down, you will find the posting that I'm going to share now, which which John put up two days ago on the 19th. He wrote the first two days. Sam and I were on the run, and and if you're curious, you can find all about Sam uh, and who she is and where she came from and pictures of her and so forth. Uh, The first two days Sam and I were on the run were far from our house. I felt helpless, especially given the fact that so many of our friends and workers were being arrested. I realized that unless I knew moment by moment what was happening... My chances of coming out of this intact, both emotionally and physically, were slim. I needed to be close to area where, I'm just going to read this with his typos in there. Um, I realized that I need, that unless I knew moment by moment what was happening, my chances of coming out of this intact um, were slim. I needed to be close to area, I guess he meant the area, where the events occurred and needed to watch and hear the actions of the authorities. 
I also needed to do my own investigation since the police only seemed to be interested in my whereabouts. Um, my safety is contingent on the truth being discovered. I today announced on NBC television that I am offering a $25,000 reward for the capture of the person or persons responsible for Mr. Fall's murder, which, and that's the, the event that we shared when we opened this topic uh, last week. After two days, we returned to the house in disguise, and I began my watch. So, no, wait a minute. He's posting to a blog. He's talking to a wired reporter on the phone. He's on NBC TV, and he went back to his house. Yeah, get a load of the disguise. The first day, I colored my full beard and my hair light gray, almost white. I darkened the skin of my face, neck and hands carefully with shoe polish and put on an L.A. Saints baseball cap with the brim facing backwards. Who are the L.A. Saints? And we, we have lots oh, of details. Louisiana. Oh. Okay, thank you. Oh, oh, good. Yes, right, Louisiana. And tufts of the front of my hair sticking out unkempt through the band. I stuffed my cheeks with chewed bubble gum stuck to the outside of my upper and lower molars making my face appear much fatter. I darkened and browned my front teeth. I stuffed a shaved-down tampon deep into my right oh. nostril and dyed the tip dark brown, giving my nose an awkward, lopsided, disgusting appearance. This is like movie makeup. I put on a pair of ragged brown pants with holes patched and darned. I wore an old, ragged, long sleeve shirt. I donned an old Guatemalan-style sarape and toted a bag containing a variety of Guatemalan woven goods. <laughs> I adjusted my posture so that I appeared a good six inches shorter than my actual height and slowly walked up and down the beach with a pronounced limp, pushing an old-style speed bicycle and peddling my wares to tourists and reporters using a broken English with a heavy Spanish accent. So he made some money. On my <laughs> second day, while peddling small wooden carvings, <laughs> I nearly sold a dolphin carving to an Associated Press reporter standing at the edge of my dock. He was pulled away from the enticement of... You know, John Sales pitch. Of his amazing dolphin. <laughs> By an urgent phone call. Among the people I spoke with that day was the caretaker at Mr. Fall's house. And this is Mr. Fall is John McAfee's next door neighbor who we who and Mr. Fall is the person who was found, who was found shot dead, in the right? head yeah. with a nine millimeter Luger pistol. Uh, the police had stated that Mr. Fall's housekeeper discovered the body. His, care, his caretaker told me that Fall did not have a housekeeper. He himself discovered the body, he said. I found this interesting and filed it away as a piece of data that might help at some point. Why would the police lie about this? Yeah, Lies always go. have a reason. Yeah. Are you going to read the whole piece here? No, nah, I think you're right. We're, we're done. Yeah. Um, Anybody who's interested, you know where to find the rest. It 
it goes on like this, talking about disguises and and watching the police and their machinations and so forth. He so, has other disguises too. When you get oh, down farther, into, yes. yeah, it's a, it's it's it's. Well, I don't want to say insane, but so anyone who's curious it's about reading about John McAfee, the uh, the antivirus pioneer of the PC industry, who is now on the lam. Uh, can find it at whoismcafee.com. I like the one where he's got a Hawaiian shirt speaking German. I think that may be my thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And what there was something he like, something about his pants, and then he's at like a disgusting Hawaiian shirt, as he put it. Yeah. And I was, I was chatting with Mark Thompson, a friend of mine, uh, you know, of analogx.com, uh, yeah. just yesterday. And, and he was like, Did you see the McAfee blog? I said, Yes, I know. And he's like, He's like out in front of his house on the beach. And he's wanted for murder. It's like, what is he thinking? Yeah. It's like, well, he apparently has confidence in his disguise. So. I guess wow. so. Yeah. So we have some Yubico news. Oh, yeah. What's up and, with Yubico? And this actually relates to, this is one of the things that I knew was coming, which is why I did a few weeks ago a, a podcast focusing on near field communications, NFC. Because I wanted to, I wanted to lay some groundwork for what NFC is exactly, how it works, how it relates to you know Wi-Fi and RFID and so forth. Um, there is a new, a new YubiKey from Yubico um, that they call Neo, and I don't know if they've actually started to use Neo the. The character from um, <laughs> from the Matrix or not, but that's Mr. the Neo that... Anderson, <laughs> right? Um, that's the character that they sort of refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I've I've chatted with um, uh, Stina Evansfard, who's the the founder and original inspiration for the YubiKey a few months back when she was down here in Southern California. We got together at Starbucks and had some coffee, and she she put me under NDA for a number of things happening. This is one of them. Okay, There's, so you can, now it can be told, finally. Huh? Now, yes, now I can talk about this. So um, this is, it's it, what they've done is they've added a, a next generation to the YubiKey, uh, which supports NFC, which allows you to do things, for example, with all smartphones, except, of course, the iPhone 5, which curiously doesn't support NFC. But, you know, my BlackBerry does and the, you know, the Galaxies. And A lot all of different Android phones. phones do, definitely, right. Yeah. And so this allows you to use, for example, you, you, you could use um, LastPass Mobile on your smartphone with the Neo YubiKey in order to authenticate, to, to verify to LastPass on an on a instance-by-instance basis that you are in physical position of possession of this YubiKey Neo. Um, and um, so it, it gives you the same one-time password. It's got the two slots. Now, there it does include something that they call... Um, NXP, uh, NXP is the renamed Philips uh, Corporation, Philips Semiconductor, something called Smart MX Security Technology, which is some public key crypto. And 
because they say that the, it, it supports CCID compliant USB token behavior. And that's uh, CCID is the, the chip or smart card interface devices, which is a standard that's been established that does use some public key, private key stuff. Is that like so, chip and pin is that, or is it different? Um, I don't know yeah, because okay. um, I know that it's CCID. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there's something called MyFair, M-I-F-A-R-E, MyFair Classic uh, is, a, is a standard technology for physical access control systems where, you know, you, you wave something near a reader and that unlocks the door, you know, access control. And so this supports that standard too. So I'm really pleased because, you know, all along the, the hope has been that we wouldn't have the so-called, you know, key chain or key ring full of individual tokens where it's like, okay, you know, which, you know, sort, sort of looking like a janitor yeah. uh, key, key ring of, of different active devices. And so they're, they're really sticking to a standards-based approach, which means that, if you were to upgrade your YubiKey to this one, and I don't actually know if there's an upgrade plan. You'd have to check. I do know that this is not cheap. This little sucker is 50 bucks. Just, um, for, the, just for the device? Just for the new YubiKey Neo. Okay. Uh, and I imagine there are, you know, if you did a corporate deal, there's no doubt quantity discounts sure, and so sure. forth. Um, but uh, I'm, not, I'm glad to see this, and there's more news coming but uh, probably not till actually it's going to be a while. Probably not till next summer. So other things are in the works and being tested and and so forth. Does so, this let me then just tap the YubiKey against the phone? Yes. And and that unlocks my LastPass and I'm on my yes. way. Wow. That, yes. that, I know fifty bucks is not you know chicken change, but that's that's pretty compelling. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. The fact that every phone except conspicuously the Apple's would uh, that supports. NFC. What this does is it it uses again one of the NFC standards that will send your phone a browser link and then launch the browser and then and provide the browser. You know the URL contains the one-time password over a secure connection, mm-hmm. so SSL protects it, and then you're able to to perform the whole transaction securely. So uh, it's you know very cool. Uh, Lepton is taking me to task for saying chicken change, and I think he would have preferred <laughs> chump change. Chump. I, I, mi- I mix chicken feed and, and chump change to form a new... It's an evolving language, <laughs> Lepton. All right. Uh, let's, let's talk about of Facebook. Evolving. Yeah, I was, yes. I was happy to hear this news. Yes. Um, the, uh, Facebook announced on their blog, uh, maybe it was just yesterday, it just happened, that... They were going to be rolling out first for all North American users and then following that for the rest of the world, HTTPS is on by default. So we've talked about the, you know, the evolution of this that some time ago, maybe it was, feels like it was maybe as much as a year ago. It was some time ago that, that Facebook responded to the threat, which we talked about a lot, was, which was, for example, represented by, um, uh, boy, I'm, I'm blanking. It was that crazy little gizmo, uh, the add-on for Firefox. Fire Sheep. Oh, uh, fi- Fire right, Sheep. right, right, right. The, the one that, that stopped you from getting your Facebook 
spied on when you're at the oh, Wi-Fi. And I mean, Wi-Fi, it yeah. was horrifying when Fire Sheep first came out as an experiment. I took a laptop over to Starbucks, and the entire column populated with the Facebook pictures yeah. of all of the, all of the people sitting around me at Starbucks, and be and the reason being that it was that Facebook. When you log into your Facebook account, you have to authenticate, but then to stay active in your Facebook account, you, they would then drop you back out of, a, of SSL, so no more uh, encryption, and the, the cookie being sent with every query was in the clear. So Fire Sheep did a they just sniffed the air because uh, you know Starbucks is famously an open Wi-Fi hotspot like any open Wi-Fi hotspot where everything is available in the air. So this thing just saw these transactions, grabbed the grabbed the profiles, and by double clicking on the person's listing in Fire Sheep, you could impersonate them. You you were logged in yeah. as them. And that, so, that, and that was the big thing. It was because some people were like, "Oh, well, I don't post anything on Facebook that I don't care people see." That that wasn't really the point. Although Facebook does give you a presumption that you're restricting who can see your stuff, it was that they could then be you. They had they had your authentication. It was awful. Full impersonation. Yes. So, so the fix to this is in a, especially in a wireless network environment where there is no encryption, is to maintain an SSL connection persistently. So Facebook initially made it an option so that security-aware users like all of our listeners could go into their Facebook profile and turn on Always Use Secure. And there's really no reason not to, except that all of those, all of those SSL negotiations that that connection setup does represent some overhead. So in Facebook's blog, they were they were boasting about you know that they've done really cool things on the technology side to minimize the impact. They're a little concerned that users may notice some slowdown. So you can turn this off if you're crazy. Mm, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> or, uh, you know, I wouldn't turn it off. I'm sure everybody who's 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 listening and using Facebook already has it turned on. But the the significant piece here is that if you had never specified it either way, it will start being on by default. So, Facebook is taking proactive responsibility to bring up the cone of silence for their entire um, you know, billion users. Uh, ultimately across the world. So that's really good news. And in bizarre timing, just today, the um, the uh, H... <laughs> uh, the, the, the HTTP uh, transport security um, standard has been ratified and f- and formalized by the IETF. Oh, good news! So, so, so that is now you know we're, we're again we're moving forward uh, uh, continuously to to increase the security you know across the board. Google, of course, has been supporting persistent security on on their site and searches now for a while. Facebook joins them, and this, of course, just you know adds pressure for everyone to do this. So it's just 100% good news. And honestly, the performance hit is not that bad. 
I, I don't think. It, it's almost a psychological thing. I've gotten arguments with some developers about this before. And if everybody just did HTTPS from the beginning and nobody did everything else, nobody would notice. The perf- yes. You know, the, because the, it, would, it, would, it isn't so bad that people are like, wow, these websites just don't work. They, well, you know, yes. it's and, all and a relative also, thing, I guess, is what I'm saying. And also, the, the, there's so much streamlining and caching you know we have covered ssl or tls as it's now referred to transport layer security the exact protocol carefully in the past and the negotiation that the client and the server go through and the the more time expensive ssl portion the whole public key stuff that only really has to happen once within a long period of time because the client and server will agree on credentials which are cached and then reused so so i think probably the the only concern is that if you if you have a a an ssl page then you want all of the assets mm-hmm. which which the page loads also to be over SSL. Otherwise, you get that scary sort of mixed security warning. Yeah. And so if there were other servers supplying assets with, with which you had not negotiated SSL connections, then the, those subsidiary assets could, could take, you know, could like slow down the page load. And they, not, they may not be as, re- as readily prone to caching as the main page and all of its content. But as you say, it's just like this is something that's only going to get faster as our machines get faster, as the servers improve their performance, as hardware acceleration of public key stuff improves. And remember that we, we can move to ECC encryption. Um, the elliptic curve crypto is much faster than traditional crypto and as Clients support it and servers support it. They will automatically notice that each other supports it, and they will choose that preferentially over the slower, older, and even maybe less secure traditional, you know, factor the product of primes. I said it right this time. <laughs> uh, problem that um, that is, is is used to to create the security in traditional public key crypto. So. I just think we're going to see this, you know, drop away as being a problem before long. And this just represents, you know, this is just good to have all of our all of our connections being uh, secured for us. Now, our next story is a problem that I did not expect to ever see. Did did the Naval Observatory go back in time? Well, something weird happened. Yeah. Uh, uh, Simon Zarafa, who uh, often sends me interesting tweets and observations, he must spend his entire life just just scraping the internet looking for interesting things because he comes up with a lot of interesting stuff he found a note that the sands internet storm center diary had posted explaining why people were reporting that their that the year on their on their computer clocks was wrong um, and what Sands posted on their Internet Storm Center diary was a few people have written have written in within the past 18 hours about their NTP servers and clients getting set back to the year 2000. The cause of this behavior 
is, is that an NTP server at the U.S. Naval Observatory, which is pretty much the authoritative time source throughout the U.S., was rebooted. And somehow its clock reverted to the year 2000. And then because of the way NTP protocol works, it's very much like DNS, where you have a hierarchy of time servers. The idea is they don't want to load down the central time server, so there's a whole bunch of of second-level time servers that synchronize themselves to the master NTP time server, and then they serve time and so forth down the hierarchy. And so they said, so this mistake of the of you know being 12 years in the past then propagated out for a limited time to downstream time sources that also obtained this wrong value they said it's a transient problem and should already be rectified not much really to report except an error at the top of the food chain as they put it causing problems to the layers below if you have a problem just fix the year or resync your NTP server. So that was bizarre. So we had the Y2K problem after all. It just wasn't what we expected, and it was 12 <laughs> years late. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I heard about this NASA issue where the, they, uh, they lost uh, another laptop. It's not the first time that they've lost laptops, but they're, they're finally taking some definitive action, it sounds like. What's going on there? Well, yeah, and I thought I would report it today because today is the deadline, November 21st. Uh, and I had meant to talk about it last week. And again, it's one of those things where I had pulled these notes together and somehow they it didn't make the final cut. But on Halloween, uh, October 31st, um, an unencrypted NASA laptop was stolen from an employee's locked vehicle, which contained unencrypted personal data, so-called PII, personally identifiable information, on a large number of people. It was password protected but not encrypted and you know i just it's funny because that was the actual line that was used and i thought i would note to people that you know password protecting the laptop prevents the os from booting but all you have to do is attach the drive as like you know and, and a USB, put it in a USB yeah. case or, you know, attach it as an external drive to an already booted system. And it'll go, oh, look, a new drive. And you have full access to the file system. Yeah. So here's what's on the drive. Would you like to look through it? <laughs> yeah. Look at all these names and addresses. Yeah. Um, so this turns out to have been the second time this year, not even in history, but just this year, I mean, his historical NASA's had a bigger problem, but just this year that a NASA laptop containing sensitive in-the-clear information was stolen. About six months ago in March, a laptop containing names, social security numbers, phone numbers, email addresses, dates of birth, college GPAs, wow. and other sensitive personal data of NASA employees at NASA's Kennedy Space Center was stolen from the car of a worker at the facility. And you got to wonder, you know, why NASA seems to be having these problems? Maybe there's a little bit of, you know, foreign intrigue going on here because you never know what you might find on a NASA laptop. So what finally happened after this is that NASA said, OK, enough of this. They issued a directive prohibiting the removal of computers from any 
NASA facility unless whole disk encryption is enabled or all sensitive files are individually encrypted. Now, why wouldn't they just say all of our hard drives have to be whole disk encrypted? Why, why well, leave any exceptions? That's, that's where they're headed. Okay. But, you know, bureaucracy and, you know, and who, who knows what logistical problems they might encounter. So CIOs, the chief information officers at all NASA facilities, have been instructed to complete disk encryption on the maximum possible number of laptops. Again, that's, you know, your typical sort of soft bureaucratic ease speak. <laughs> Little CYA um, there, yeah. Yes. By November 21st, today and to add encryption capabilities to all laptops by de- December 21st. So who, know, who, who knows? Maybe laptops are in, in employees' homes. Maybe they're in shipment or they're traveling, or you know, so you can't get to them. And, so, and but, it's a large enterprise, so it may take a while to make sure you got I, everything covered. I, I get that, yeah. And to give you a sense for how creepy this can be, um, the NASA Inspector General, who's named Paul Martin, giving testimony before the U.S. House of Representatives, the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, the Subcommittee on Investigations and Oversight... Snappy noted, name. Yes. Oh, yeah. As well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Noted that in March of 2011, the theft of an unencrypted netbook, netbook notebook computer resulted in the exposure of algorithms used to command and control the International Space Station. So, you know, if you see anything falling out of the sky. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Uh, don't even yeah. joke. That's horrible. And then in a different, in another incident, sensitive data uh, regarding NASA's Constellation and Orion programs were similarly compromised when a laptop contained the data was stolen. So, you know, hopefully we'll still have a space organization by the time they get this locked down. But they're doing it now. And, and this has made the news... And this is just this ends up being good because soon it will be well, you know, other CEOs will say to their CIOs, hey, NASA has all of their laptops encrypted. Why don't we? So that's good. You that's, know? A, that's a good way of looking at it. They, they hopefully will set a good trend. Uh, pretty yes. much every laptop should be, have whole disk encryption. Yes. In every laptop in existence used by anybody should have. Yes. I, I, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I'm sure that's the way all of the people in the audience think, too. Uh, the cloud is always a, a good topic uh, for, for a security discussion. And there, there's some news about Google Docs not just being for documents anymore. That's right. Now Google Documents can also be used by Trojans as their command and control server. How convenient. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's free. Yeah. Um, Researchers at Symantec have detected Trojan horse malware named Backdoor MacAdocs that is using Google Docs to communicate with its command and control infrastructure. The malware appears to be targeting users in Brazil, harvesting and collecting specific data, including the infected computer's host names and operating system types. The malware uses Google Drive's viewer as a proxy to receive instructions from a master command and control server. 
And and apparently this trick disguises, well, naturally, this trick disguises the communication as encrypted connections within a trusted service. So he's like, hey, well, we trust Google and we have an SSL, you know, secure encrypted communication using Google Drive to um, Google Docs. And so, you know, not surprisingly, a Google representative was quoted saying that the company is investigating because using any Google product to conduct this kind of activity is a violation of our product policies. So, so, yeah. so this isn't infecting somebody who's using Google Drive. It's using Google Drive to mask how it's sending command and control? Well, yeah, the idea is, you know, it is, you know, of course, Google Docs is in the cloud. Yeah. And so you would, you would set up a Google Docs account and give that account public access. Mm-hmm. And then anybody who wants to can, 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 can see that. And so the idea would be that the Trojan itself would would incorporate a copy of of Google Drive or maybe down, download it once it infects a new computer. Essentially, it would set up a local instance of Google Drive mapping the drive to that Google Docs folder. Gotcha. And so all of the all the Trojans would be watching that folder, and then the the master bot, you know the the Trojan master, the bot master, would then post instructions about what th- they wanted the, the Trojan fleet to do to that folder. All of the, all of the connections that all, all of the Trojans monitoring the folder would see the update, get the instructions, and then go about doing whatever they've been told to do. So I, I know Google probably doesn't feel this way, but it's actually a fairly good recommendation for using Google Docs as a convenient <laughs> way to share information. Well, and of course, traditionally, we were using IRC chat, where, but, but IRC chat didn't have you know, the reputation that Google has yeah. and didn't just come with free SSL connectivity mm-hmm. in order to, to, to protect and make secret the um, you know and, and thus non packet sniffable uh, the transactions going on and so here you just bootstrap yourself and use all of this nice well working you know high availability Google infrastructure uh, in order to communicate to all your Trojans yeah how, how convenient how, how very convenient <laughs> uh, and, and uh, uh, finally this this is uh, uh, somewhat upsetting to especially to fans of, of free at BSD they, they had a pretty severe server compromise a couple months back yep um, well and they didn't discover it until nearly two months later mm-hmm. um, what they found on November 11th was that so that's 10 days ago was that back on September 19th so nearly two months ago actually a little more than two months ago mm-hmm. um, but after nearly two months of the breach, back on September 19th, two of their servers had been breached. Um, uh, what the security team believes is that the intruders gained access to the servers using an SSH authentication key that was stolen from a developer. So, you know, this is a problem. You've got secure access to servers and and. In, but, you know, not just one person has that. Your whole development team needs mm-hmm. to be able to post to that central repository. So, you, you know, every single one of those developers has highly privileged access to the server. And 
if they lose their credentials that authenticate them, then, you know, this sort of thing can happen. So the consequence is, and this is what FreeBSD um, has formally stated, is that users who've installed FreeBSD since September 19th are being advised to completely reinstall their systems because third-party application software packages, and there's been no enumeration of them. Maybe we'll get that in the future. I mean, from what I heard just, just as of this podcast time, um, they're still looking into this to figure out exactly what happened. But they know it's not the kernel, not the system libraries, the compiler or the command line tools. So it's just this, you know, the FreeBSD application repository. They think that may be where some mischief uh, occurred. So, so they're saying, you know, if you did a recent since September 19th, um, install a FreeBSD. And normally the FreeBSD install is a network install that sucks everything down mm-hmm. from, the, from, from the repository on the fly that uh, you are advised, and they apologize, of course, but you're advised to do it again. Oof. So yeah. it happens that FreeBSD is my Unix of choice. Uh, it's, it's the one I have gotten to know and, and like a lot. So. It's, it's a good one. And uh, yeah. am I remembering this correctly? That's the one that Darwin is based on for OS X? Yes, it was it was FreeBSD. Yeah. And actually it was Brett Glass who recommended it to me long time ago. Right. And that was a, a good recommendation. Well, what's going on in the Twitterverse? You got any good Twitters to talk about this week? Uh just um <laughs> I I've mentioned this before and I I keep having people thank me for this recommendation. So I just thought I would share the fact that, you know, that people are liking this. And this was Mark Grennan. Uh, who tweeted, he says, I'm an SQ, I'm a MySQL database administrator, and I love the outdoors. He said, oh, actually, that was in his profile uh, on, on Twitter. So he said, at SGGRC, just a thanks for the tip on the show Homeland, the most well-written dramatic show I've ever seen. Thanks. So, um, um, Man, she I, can be hard to watch sometimes. She's so freaking nervous all the time. <laughs> She's a little twitchy. She's so good at that. Yes. And, you know, she's acting. You know, Claire Danes is a serious actress. No, Claire Danes is not like that in normal life. I've seen interviews with her. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, she's doing a great job. It's in its second season now. And you really need to, if you're going to get on to it. And I keep hearing people talk about it. I mean, it is is wonderful. It's on Showtime Network. Um, and you can get like the first season, you know, you, you, you can, I'm sure the various archives and repositories, I don't know where Showtime officially has theirs, probably just on the net. You could watch, you could watch it from them. So I know you can get it from iTunes. I, I, and I, yeah, I may, I hope I'm not misremembering this, uh, but I thought Netflix may have had them or at least did have them for a while. Stuff sort of comes and goes there. So, yeah. Anyway, so it is, I do recommend it. I'm enjoying the second season as much as the first, uh, which was terrific. And I have two quick little notes about Spinrite. Uh, Greg Kurtz, he also tweeted, because I have it's at G Kurtz. He said in Cleveland, he said he described himself as a software developer who works from home, family tech support guy, dad, husband, and giver of treats to dogs. Good man. And he said at SGGRC, this is twice that Spinrite has helped me salvage a drive that was gone. I can't brag about it enough. Money well spent. So thank you, Greg, for publicly tweeting that. And then uh, Ray McGill, 
who's a listener in New Hampshire, said, I want to buy Spinrite for USB drives. A longtime SN listener. I want to use, um, okay, now he said SN, but he meant SP or, oh no, SR, Spinrite. I want to use S, yeah, I want to use Spinrite to scan two USB external drives. The only answer I've seen is that there's no support for USB, and some people have gotten it to work through magic. <laughs> Can I use Spinrite for USB? So I just thought I would answer Ray's question, and to anybody else who's wondering, the answer is yes. Um, do you need to we, be a wizard, though? You do not need to be. Oh, good. All right. But you need to have a more recent motherboard. But more recent, of course, is relative. What, what you need is a motherboard that understands USB. And all motherboards today do. They let you boot from USB. They see USB. You know, you've got USB drives in the boot options and so forth. So, so as long as the motherboard that you're running it on does recognize a USB drive plugged into it, and that's, you know, it's easier to do. Plug the USB drive in, reboot, go into the BIOS, and see if it's listed there. If the motherboard sees it, Spinrite will see it, and then it will run on your external USB drive with no problems at all. I, you know, I'd, I'd forgotten about having to install drivers to be yep. able to see USB drives. Uh, but yep. the, the very first time I ever used a thumb drive, Robert uh -huh. Heron at Comdex, I want to say 2002, 2003. Yeah, like probably one of the 10 last, years ago. One of the yep. last Comdexes uh, brought his stories for fresh gear to me to post on the web and he's like, hey, you got to try out this cool thing. It's a thumb drive. And I had to install the drivers in Windows 98 to be able to read the files. But Yep. Yeah. Yep. But you don't, you don't, you don't have to do that anymore. Nope. As long as the BIOS knows about it, Spinrite will be able to see it. Excellent. Uh, well, let's move on into our listener feedback number 155, shall we? Wow. Yep. All right. Paul White in Portland kicks us off with some good news about Verizon. Uh, he says, longtime Security Now listener, I have heard Watch Them All and a Spinrite user, blah, blah, blah. He wrote blah, blah, blah. Uh, just wanted to pass this along to you. Changed my email address for my online My Verizon web account and got this message upon completing of validating the new email. Your new email address has been validated. Once the new email address has been in our records for 30 days, you can use it to reset your password. Am I wrong, or is a major player doing something right? Thanks to you and Leo. Keep up the fine work, Paul. Yeah, um, he is exactly right. I was, I, this is the first I had heard of that. Um, I'm a, also a My Verizon account user. As am I. Um, and... Uh, it's like, wow, that's really good because, of course, this, this prevents a, a number of potential exploits where, you're, where somebody might somehow get on to your, uh, uh, your web account. For example, like if there was an – I don't know that Verizon doesn't use SSL, but we were just talking about the problems that you have of, um, of – um, like having your session sniffed and impersonating someone. So you might be impersonated, but you, what you want to prevent is them being able to then leverage that into getting your password or not getting it, but being able to reset it, claiming to be you and to have forgotten it. So, you know, putting up a 30-day waiting period, essentially, 
uh, it, that represents a really nice step forward in security. So, I think Matt Honan would have liked this sort of policy <laughs> to have been in place. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Our uh, second one comes from Daniel in Colorado, posing the question regarding cascading ciphers. He says, Hoyo, Stephen Leo. TrueCrypt offers the ability to use more than one type of encryption when building a file container or when encrypting a hard drive. Say we are using a paired AES two-fish configuration. TrueCrypt will encrypt each block with two-fish and then encrypt that intermediate result with AES. Each cipher gets its own 256-bit key, which are mutually independent. I am wondering if this merely doubles the encryption, like adding a second lock to a door, or if it somehow creates a stronger encryption by re-encrypting the first cipher text with a second different key and algorithm. Great question. Um, okay, so the... The idea is the the, the reason this multi uh, what did he call it uh, paired or cascade he, he used the word cascading ciphers the reason that's there is I mean this is really belt and suspenders stuff mm-hmm. this is the this is the true crypt guys saying there's a you know non non zero probability but probably vanishingly small but still you know maybe not not absolutely zero that a flaw could be found in a cipher and if a flaw were found in the cipher that you had chosen to use for encrypting your volume or whatever in TrueCrypt then that would be a problem so the reason they allow you to to use multiple ciphers is that the chance of all of those multiple ciphers being simultaneously found wanting is, I mean, that probably really is about as close to zero as you need to get. So it, re- it, it actually isn't for greater security like in this from the standpoint of making it harder to crack your drive, although we'll address that in one second, the main reason was just, again, belt and suspenders. If, if you encrypt under one cipher and then re-encrypt the encrypted results from the first cipher with a second different cipher, then you, you get the encryption goodness of both. So that if one were completely destroyed cryptographically, like overnight, you, you're you fine. So it is now, like two locks on a door in that sense. Because you have to, um, even if you break through the first lock, there's another lock you'd still have to break through. Yes. Maybe it's, it's like two doors in succession. Okay. Yeah, me, sure. You know, I, of, I got the first door. Ah, oh, crap. There's another door. <laughs> of Get Smart uh, when yeah. he was trying to get into his base. Um, so, so... It doesn't double the encryption because if if we now now if we sw- if we switch from why they did this, his question is: Does it double it or is it stronger? And the fact is, it 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 is stronger in the sense that you have two two fifty six bit keys, both of which you would have to brute force mm-hmm. in order to crack each of the ciphers in order to decrypt the drive. 
Now, I would argue that one 256-bit key is already, you know, all the suspenders anyone needs. And, and so, yes, this could give you the equivalent of a 512-bit key because they are independent of each other. And you'd need to brute force both in order to, to, to decrypt the drive. Now, it's not double the strength because that would be a 257-bit key mm-hmm. rather than a 256-bit key. You'd be adding one bit to the key. That doubles the strength. This is, this is 2 to the 256 times stronger. So it's just ridiculous, yeah. which is why it's like, okay, you know, uh, TrueCrypt does a good job at generating a very high-quality, extremely pseudo-random 256-bit key. You know, the, the, the danger in TrueCrypt is that you don't choose a strong enough password. That, as far as we know, the only known problem comes from the user using a weak password and then somebody brute force guessing passwords, looking at the header on the TrueCrypt volume and and decrypting it. So, um, so the double the double cipher doesn't protect you from the actual probable means of attacking a TrueCrypt volume. It protects you from either of the ciphers being found to to you know to be. Un, uh, insecure suddenly through some breakthrough that we're not expecting to have happen. Well, this is similar to what we were talking about with quantum key distribution before the show, which is, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's more secure, but it doesn't actually address the likely security vulnerability. Well, and we've talked about this often. Yet it, it, there is the, the, the perfect model is the chain with, the, with security being the strength of the chain, which depends upon the strength of every link in the chain so the weakest link def- you know the weakest link is the problem that mm-hmm. determines how strong the entire chain is and so you may have one you know quantum crypto key exchange link that's just i mean it's made out of titanium but if the other one is a plastic straw that's going to be the one that right. gives so you know, you still have a problem with your chain. We've yeah. encased the titanium link in another case of titanium. We still have a plastic <laughs> straw link, though. So what do you yeah. want to do? Yeah. Uh, Stephen Metz in Highland, New York, responds about secure nuclear site data monitoring. He says, hi, Stephen Leo, or in this case, Tom. Did you write that yep. in or was, did he write that? No, no, I, I, I did because okay. I kept seeing Leo referred to. I thought, well, <laughs> we've got to give... Tom, this is a a long post, but I want you to share it with our listeners, Tom, because it is cool. And we'll talk about it afterwards. But it's just nice to know that somebody is thinking about this and there actually is a solution. All right. He says, I love the show and listen to it on my daily commute to work. I was just listening to episode 375 and wanted you and the listeners to know that there is a solution to the issue of securely monitoring nuclear power plants remotely. I'm referring to this portion of the episode where Leo said, do not manage nuclear plants remotely, please. Steve, you said, yeah. Leo said, if you don't want to be on site, then don't do the plan at all. Just don't. If you don't feel safe enough to sit next to the core, don't build it in the first place. And Steve, you said, yeah, so what's done is pure convenience and absolute sheer stupidity. 
Uh, Leo said, I have some files which I would not wish anyone to tamper with. I store them on a computer never connected to the net, never has been. If I can take such precautions, why is it that infrastructure computers are connected to the Internet for the sake of convenience? As an example, nuclear power stations have been around since the 60s, and they weren't connected to the Internet then. They worked. Why connect them now? So here's what Stephen Metz says. Disclaimer, I work at a company that sells the solution I'm speaking of, Owl Computing Technologies. As you said, it would be convenient to be able to monitor the status of our infrastructure with pieces of it geographically distributed from a central place in real time. Also, many facilities have databases that archive real-time data from all sensors and devices. Many industries have regulatory requirements for such databases and must replicate them off-site. So the issue is... Can data be exported in real time without providing a path that hackers can use to probe and attack the source of that data? As your listeners know, firewalls and antivirus programs are no guarantee for home PCs, much less nuclear facilities. The company I work for has solutions in place at more than half of the nuclear facilities in the United States. These solutions consist of a pair of machines. One is connected to a secure internal network or device, while the other is on a separate, less secure network, perhaps with Internet connectivity. A pair of fiber optic cards connects these two servers, but one card only has the optical hardware to send data through the fiber, while the other only has hardware to receive data from the fiber. Thus, it is physically impossible for a signal to be sent or received in the opposite direction. We call this a dual diode configuration. If you wish to know more details, we refer to the machines as the send-only and receive-only servers. These names are based on how information is sent relative to the fiber optic connection between them. The send-only server is on an internal protected network, while the receive-only server is on a less secure network, perhaps with internet connectivity. There is a protocol break between the servers, meaning that you cannot specify the final IP destination address for data from the send-only side. A computer on the protected network can only specify the IP address and a port number on the send-only server and has no knowledge where the data goes after the dual diode. If we're dealing with files, then the whole file is received on the send-only server. The file is then sent over the one-way fiber optic link through a protocol similar to ATM. No TCP header information is retained or passed to the receive-only server. Instead, the send-only server assigns the file a channel ID based on the port number the file came in on. This channel ID goes with the file to the receive-only server and is then mapped to a destination IP address slash port. This is like a TNO, double-blind setup, that you speak of, Steve, in that the send-only side has no knowledge of the destination IP or port number, and the receive-only side has no knowledge of the source computer IP address. Also, files sent through the dual diode can be scanned for viruses and or filtered on file type, whitelist and or blacklist keywords, XML schemas, or any other criteria. With the protocol break in scanning, even if malware were already inside a customer network, it could not dial home through this one-way outgoing connection. Similarly, streams of data can be sent. They are subject to the same protocol break where all TCP, UDP header information is stripped. The streams can also be scanned in real time to verify conformance to different formats, MPEG-2, RTP, etc. With this dual diode type of solution, a company can share information from one network to another while maintaining network separation. And the dual diode can be installed in the opposite direction to only allow data 
to go into a private network. This is common in government use cases such as feeding live surveillance video streams into top secret networks with assurance that no data can leak out of the top secret network through that connection. If more information is needed, feel free to visit our website. Uh, and he gives the website owlcti.com. Thanks, Stephen Metz. Isn't that neat? Does that does that I, work? So, yeah. So the idea is you you create a hardware enforced one way connection. You 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 need a protocol which which inherently doesn't require acknowledgement. So, you know, we're used to, for example, a TCP or even UDP protocols where the, the consequences of our sending is acknowledged in order to verify that the data was received. If you, but that's not secure. There's no way to do that safely. So what they do is they use a fiber optic link and there's just a, there, there's a, you know, a, a transmitting, you know, laser diode at one end and but no but no receiver and at the other end is a receiving photodiode and no transmitter so it so it's by har- it's hardware enforced that the sender is just blindly sending data out and the receiver is receiving it and the trick is it it has to be a protocol that will work without acknowledgement because there will, there can be no acknowledgement of the data being received. It's all sin so, no ack. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And so it's just it's it's going out, um, you know, just assuming that the other end is connected and listening, and uh, and in, in that way, they as as he says, I guess they call it a dual diode. I was thinking, well, when I first read this, I thought, well, why just not one diode? And I guess it's that. They visu- they visually see it as one at each end. Mm-hmm, There's mm-hmm. a you know a, a diode, the the electrical component a diode only allows current to flow through it in one direction, and so each card, uh, each interface card is like that. One is a transmitter only. One is a receiver only. And so their whole company, if, at least this aspect of what they're offering, is built around one way connections. And then, and then they've they've developed a protocol, a, a carrier protocol, which doesn't require acknowledgement. Which so essentially, this the, the 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 emitter, the sender, is is sort of like it's broadcasting blindly into this fiber optic, and the receiver captures it and figures out what's been sent. Maybe there's error correction stuff. So that they yeah, I was going to say, what do you do about packet loss or stuff like that? It all has to happen on one end. Right. So, they, so they've added the technology to, to make that work robustly. And, you know, I, w- I thought it was just nice that such a thing exists. That's yeah. great. Very interesting. Thanks, Stephen, for that. Uh, question number four, Gary McCleary in Wamaro, New Zealand. Kiora, Gary, uh, says, rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. Uh-oh. Hi, Steve. I just don't understand why you're so excited about Microsoft turning DNT on. That's do not track. It's simply a request not to be tracked. It doesn't stop these people tracking us. It's not as if when we set this setting, people can't 
track us. They make too much money from tracking us for them to stop. I admit it is an extremely small step in the right direction, but it is meaningless in respect to any actual benefit to the user. So please, please explain why you are so excited about what Microsoft has done. Cheers, Gary McCleary. So I, I, I picked this out of the mailbag because it's, um, it's something that a number of users have, have been confused by. And I've said it before, but this is a perfect time to just say, okay, I get that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm Mr. Turn off your third-party cookies, which arguably is a proactive step that a user can, can use to configure their browser to actually change the behavior of the browser. And I get it. In fact, Microsoft, as we discussed last week, just calls this a signal, the do not track signal. So it's just a, you know, a signal that the browser is sending out expressing user intent. And so many of these things take time. The the keynote that we shared from the Microsoft um, executive last week understood that we're at the beginning of a discussion, that that the world has changed, the issue of privacy and secrecy has changed, as a, as a function of the technology which we've generated, and this is creating new problems. And one of the things that Microsoft recognized is that users want control. They want to, what they, they, they don't necessarily need the secrecy of their data because, for example, they're posting all kinds of stuff on their Facebook pages, but they want control over who has access to it. And, and so... I, I recognize we got a long way to go. I absolutely get it that this doesn't change anything, but this represents a step forward. And and this is the way it's going to happen, is that this will happen. um, Users will understand it. Microsoft, reading between the lines, it has to be that Microsoft sees a marketing advantage for them to have this signal turned on by default. Uh, which, you know, I hope works, where Microsoft, you know, the idea would be that IE would get the reputation of being, you know, requesting not to be tracked more than the competing browsers. And I mean, and the case is, it is, it's easy to turn this on in Firefox. It's almost impossible to turn it on. I mean, you can, you can find it in Chrome, but you've got to dig. So, so... Microsoft surveyed their users. Three quarters of them said, I would rather not be tracked. So Microsoft set the default that way and explains what they've done when you install IE10, which either comes with um, Windows 8 or you're able to install it on Windows 7. So, yeah, I, you know, Gary and everyone else who, like, thinks I'm crazy... Just be patient. I'm patient. Yeah. There's no, it's just going to take time. And ultimately, I'm sure if the industry does not regulate itself, it will be regulated. And that's the, I mean, that's the, the tension that exists here. There is tension between what users want and what the tracking companies want. And if, if users' desires not to be tracked, are not voluntarily honored, then they will be honored 
by law. And then and companies that break the law will suffer the consequences in reputation and treasure. Well, so and, and we're, we're just at the beginning. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. It's always it's easy to criticize beginning. a voluntary system like this to say, well, people don't have to follow it. Uh, and especially in the early times, people aren't following it. The idea of any kind of system like this is that if you get enough big companies to follow it, most of the reputable companies will follow it. Uh, and if only the reputable companies are following it, it's the disreputable companies that people will avoid anyway because they, right. they, they won't want to use that stuff. Now, things are a little different on the Internet because it's so easy to go from one place to another. But I, I think about the rating system for movies. There's no law that says you are restricted to being uh, younger than 17 to see movies. The movie studios and the movie theaters agreed to self-regulate, and it's as if it were a law. And you could say, well, the theaters don't have to follow that, and they don't, but they, they, it, it is, that is an example of it working. Now, it doesn't always work. You can find examples of, of this sort of thing not working, and that's where it gets to what you were saying, Steve, which is the government will often step in in those cases if the voluntary regulation doesn't work. Yeah, I, I, I think that the other thing also is there's a real question which has never been answered about what's the true value of this tracking? My feeling is they track because they can. Um, you know, and this is where Leo and I have gone around and around because it's not at all clear that anything bad will happen if this data aggregation stopped it's not necessary for for actually google now that they own um uh you know a, a major ad advertising uh supplier um it's not it's not clear that it's necessary for them to aggregate all of the locations that i go to and try to figure out who i am um people feel that it's a little creepy if they are like, you know, shopping for some things in one lo on one website and then go somewhere else and ads sort of follow them around the Internet. You know, it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's a little creepy for them. So when, when, when people see evidence of tracking, it's not something that they think is inuring to their benefit. So it's not at all clear that if all of this aggregation was just outlawed, that anything would change. I think the advertising industry would go right along, ads would be on websites, everything would be fine. I believe they, tr they track and aggregate only because they can. And if they couldn't, if this had never happened, we would still have a rich ad-based ecosystem. And I'll bet that's where we're headed. Yeah, and, and in fact... The, the increase in tracking has not made Internet advertising more valuable than television advertising yet. And television advertising is notoriously badly tracked uh, right. as far as who's watching it. So it, it's, it's not as simple uh, as, as what you've got out there. There's a, there's a lot of complex factors, a lot of moving parts. It is, it is funny, too, because you know that do dollars spent on TV are being spent as wisely as possible. So when you're looking at the commercials of a given show or a given time, you, you know, you can tell like, oh, this is the market segment that these guys are going after because of the nature of the commercials that occur on that channel at that time or during that show. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can sort of see the effect of that in the aggregate. And there's an argument to be made, not to carry this on too long, but there's an argument to be made that you can, you can persuade people to want to be tracked 
Because if you're watching a video and it's got a, a, a bunch of uh, advertisements, uh, you know, for men's cologne and you're a woman, you, you're, you'd rather be, you'd ra- you know what, I don't want to see that. That's, that's not relevant to me. I want to see ads that are relevant to me. So I'm not saying that everyone will go for that, but there, there's an element of that in Do Not Track too to say, I would like to be tracked. As long as you're the one in control of that, I'm fine with that. I think one of the things we may get to, and it'll be interesting to see how this experiment plays out, is the notion of opt-in tracking, yeah. where you go to a site with a browser that is saying do not track. The site you go to sees that, and and they get enough more revenue if they allow their advertisers to track us who visit there than if they don't. That they say, hey, you know, we're ad-supported, um, we need you to enable tracking of you while you're here because it makes that big a difference to our revenue. And that's the experiment I'd like to see. Yeah. You know, what will people do? Will they go, hey, uh, no, it's not worth it to me to be tracked. That's creepy. I'm going to go somewhere else where I'm not being asked. But, you know, that kind of, of informed consent is, you know, that would be a, a nice thing to see. Yeah. Question number five comes from Tally Sherman Hall in Seattle, Washington, wanting to know if we can help him get the word out. Uh, Tally writes, I recently started getting unsolicited and unexpected email from Digital Lifeboat, an online PC backup service. It appears that somebody set up an account using my email address by mistake. So Digital Lifeboat have been sending me updates about the PC being backed up on the account with links to their website. If I wanted to access this person's account with all of their personal information and all of the data in their backup files, I simply have to go to the Digital Lifeboat website and request a password reset using my email address. It is just the customer's dumb luck that I am too scrupulous to do so. Even if I don't do anything, though, they are still not getting any notification emails. I am. And they will never be able to reset their own password because everything goes to my email address. I tried unsuccessfully to contact Digital Lifeboat by email and their webpage so I could warn them about the risks they are taking by not verifying customers' email addresses during account creation and possibly to find a way to contact the customer without invading their privacy, but none of that worked. So today I finally posted on their Facebook page and did receive a response from a man who initially did not understand the issue and then proceeded to tell me about an even bigger problem. He wrote, quote, I forgot that our two-factor cell phone authentication is currently disabled. When we disabled it, we left this gaping hole in our security. Wow, that's our screw-up. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. I'd like to delete this thread so as not to advertise this issue, and we'll address it internally. That thread was deleted, but not before I took a screenshot of it. It worries me to think of all the people trusting this company with their personal information and backup data because they're not being told the truth. Digital Lifeboat touts 256-bit AES encryption to ensure complete privacy and security of your data. But what good is that encryption when they don't bother to protect the customer's account? It's the same thing we were talking about earlier. They clearly have awful security practices, and I'm still not sure they even understand the initial problem I brought to their attention. At least now all Security Now listeners will know what's going on with this worrisome PC backup solution company. Thanks for allowing me to vent. So that's uh, the, that's Tally Sherman Hall uh, saying this about Digital Lifeboat. Uh, isn't that something? So, so if Tally is right, and from everything he said, it sure sounds like it is. Um, this 
this particular backup solution company doesn't have an email verification loop. So when you set up an account with them, a typo in your email address um, goes unnoticed by the person setting up the account or them. And of course, as we know, email is sort of the, is the one common denominator that all internet users have. It's, and we're assumed that we have, we, we have exclusive access to our own email account. So that's used as sort of the universal password recovery, you know, prove that you are who you say you are um, solution. So, so in this instance, what this guy, what Tally is having is the, the person who set up the account had a typo. Who knows what his email address is that could have been wrong um, so that so that the company believes Tally is this other guy. And thanks to the fact that email control is so important, um, he has control over this person's, you know, unwitting and undesired control over this person's backup solution. So anyway, I thought this was a great little case study in – in the importance of of setting things up right when you do PC backup. 256-bit AES encryption doesn't mean anything in that case. Exactly. Yeah. The weakest link again. It's that plastic us. straw that got you. You know, <laughs> they, it does sound like they actually had a two-factor authentication system. It sounds like they they at least have the idea of what should be done. They just they just had it off. Well, and I'm not sure without actually... Without any kind of backup. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how... Their cell phone authentication being disabled factors into this because I don't know why that well, would have depends on how they fixed, implemented it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why that would have fixed uh, an, an email, you know, a lack of email verification. But you know, certainly that's here's a good reason why email verification is really important. Absolutely. You know, Nintendo Wii U. Couple of good good things about that yesterday. One, when they asked if I wanted to uh, to be opted into a mailing list, it was not an opt in or an opt out. It said, "We have a mailing list. Opt in, opt out. Forced forced opt situation. Ideal for everybody." Nice. And the second thing nice. is, they did email verification when I set up a new account. They said, nice. "We're not going to we're not going to do anything with your your Wii account until you go to your email, and we make sure that that's really you." So good. And yeah, and and then you click a link that verifies yeah. that you have control of that. Yep. Question number six from Vincent in Pittsburgh updates us about Hamachi's private network IP allocation. He writes, Steve, I thought this was interesting. Hamachi must have retired their use of the 5.0.0.0/8 IP allocation. I recently deployed a new Hamachi installation, and it grabbed an IP from 25.0.0.0/8, which is IP space registered to Great Britain's Ministry of Defense. I guess they assume most users would have no legitimate reason for accessing this IP space. Thanks. Okay, so this bears on a number of things from different directions that we've talked about in the past. First of all, um, we discovered, we, our podcast listeners, discovered Hamachi in its infancy, and it, people just went wild. And in fact, um, the... I don't, I don't, it wasn't very well known at the time, and this podcast is probably responsible for putting it on the map. Um, I mean, no, we ha- we've, we've had a great dialogue with the original uh, designer of Hamachi, and uh, you know, so, it, so it's been a resource that a lot of our listeners have used. Now, 
The problem was that Hamachi cleverly the, the way Hamachi works is when you install the client in different machines, it was using the five dot network, which was a chunk of IP space, internet um, allocation space that had never been allocated. It was dark, but it wasn't like it, it wasn't dead. It was just not used yet. Now, so so we have private networks. Everyone is used to who uses a, a little home router will see something. typically .0.something or .1.something. So that the 192.168 is a is formally reserved for private networking. Then the then the larger one, of course, the biggest one is the 10 dot network, which is formally reserved for private networking. Five wasn't reserved; it just wasn't used. But as the internet, as we've discussed recently, famously began to run out of IPv4 space uh the the five dot network got allocated so so the idea was that hamachi was very cleverly five years ago or more using the five dot network because it was a not in use publicly meaning that no there was never an IP address of five dot anything out in the world. Nor was it a private network. That is, it wasn't 192.168 or 10 dot anything. So the idea was it could, it could safely coexist in your system. It wouldn't be public. There would never be a, a chance of it colliding with a public IP, but neither was it private. It couldn't collide with a 10 dot IP or a 192.168. It was like just completely off on its own until we began to run out of IP space, in which case, at, at which time the the central authority said, OK, we're going to start chopping up you know, the IP, the number five space. Well, that immediately raised a question. Uh oh, what's Hamachi going to do? Because they they couldn't keep using five any longer five dot addresses started to appear out on the internet and that would be a problem so then in another related issue there's this bizarre 25 dot space which we have talked about on this podcast in the past because this entire huge chunk of space this is 16 million ips every ip beginning with 25 so from 25.0.0.0 to 25.255.255.25, technically 254, that entire block, huge block, was originally given back when, you know, oh, my God, we'll never run out of IPs, um, back in the old days to Great Britain's Ministry of Defense. And get this. It just uses it like a private network. That is, it isn't routed publicly. It uses it just like a 10-dot network for its own internal communications, meaning that in the same way that 5-dot used to be non-publicly routed because it had never been allocated, 
25 is not publicly routed because the Great Britain Ministry of Defense owns it and is and, and doesn't have machines on the public internet. They just use it for talking to each other privately. But it's not a 10 dot, which is really what they should be using. Um, so anyway, this is clever. This is Hamachi figuring out, or now it's logged me in because they're the people who purchased Hamachi. They figured out another another class A block of IP space that wasn't publicly routed, wasn't subject to being allocated because apparently the Ministry of Defense is not in any hurry to give up their 25 allo- their 25 dot allocation of 16 million IPS. And it's sort of a, an interesting compromise. Now, apparently, this switchover did cause people problems. People who are using Hamachi who who weren't dynamically allocating their the Hamachi IP, suddenly all of the fives turned into 25s. And so people have scrambled around because their Hamachi links broke. They had to go manually uh, change them. Right. Yeah. Also, Ham- Hamachi does support already... IPv6 and Hamachi has their own IPv6 allocation that can never be taken away from them. So so the, all of this 5 to 25 switchover is just for the sake of maintaining compatibility with IPv4 addresses for those people who need that, but the but right now OSs have IPv4, uh, IPv6 stacks and have had those, you know, protocol stacks for, for a number of years. So you probably can just go ahead and switch over to using IPv6 and disable IPv4 completely. But this was an in- interesting hack. Yeah. And uh, as long as the Ministry of Defense holds on to their 25-dot allocation and does not route it publicly... Uh, I don't see any problem. Does this mean, though, that you can't use Hamachi if you're inside the Ministry of Defense's network? That's correct. And in fact, in their blog posting, LogMeIn said, we do not have a single customer of Hamachi in Great Britain's Ministry of Defense. (laughs) That would cause a problem. But they, they not only isn't it a problem now, but as you said, that would be that would cause a problem, and so nobody in Great Britain's Ministry of Defense will be able right. to use Hamachi um, and a twenty-five dot address because it would foul up their network. You know, this makes me wonder if CNET was uh, like notoriously against allowing LogMeIn on their internal network. Uh, I had to get special permission. The IT huh. guy had to had to whitelist the exact Ethernet port I was going to use when I went huh. live and wanted to show LogMeIn. And I wonder if they weren't using five dot internally for something yeah, now. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'd never thought about yeah. that before. But it sounds like we need to go from MI6 to MIPv6. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Question number seven: uh, Robin's kids in the UK must have Java. Why is that? My kid's laptop has just spectacularly failed MS Offline Defender with a dozen or more Java exploits. Java? Why is he allowing them Java? I hear you cry. Well, 
Minecraft. If they didn't have Minecraft, then life would be unbearable, parentheses, for all of us. I have allowed MS Offline Defender to clean the PC, and I'm just rescanning it. Last time I restored a clean image, but there seems little point in doing this again, as it will only get infected again. So my questions are, should I trust it if it comes up clean? What can I do to reduce the chances of it happening again? And should I remove Java and buy iPads for all three of my kids in the hope that this is immune to an f- infection? And there's a Minecraft app for iPad. says, thanks for the invaluable resource and a tip of the hat to Leo for his impressive knowledge of the world and culture outside the USA, a major part of the reason that Security Now is an international giant. Okay, so if you have to have Java and... For example, your your kids need it for like one purpose to run Minecraft. Um, I've I did see in the mailbag this week somebody who was promoting the idea of using um, Sandboxy to sandbox Java, mm. and the problem is I don't think that's probably secure enough. Um, sandboxy. Um, essentially filters the API, the application programming interface calls between applications and the operating system to prevent them from, you know, like writing files to the OS and so forth. But the nature of Java exploits allows the user's own code to run in the app. And I just, to me, it feels like maybe sandboxy isn't enough isolation to really give you security. Um, A great solution for Robin's kids and the Robin household would be to use a true virtual machine. You know, free virtual machine technology exists now, so that won't cost anything. And the idea would be all you have to do is train the kids to launch the VM and in that, nothing is installed except Java. I mean, you could put other things in there if you wanted to, but you probably don't want to, you know, have too huge a hard a virtual hard drive established. So just put Java in the VM. Then the external system won't have it. You won't have to worry about it getting infected. And then you just you have this you know, a contained environment, a virtual machine that shouldn't cost anything. That's got Java installed, and that's where you play Minecraft. And I think that's probably a robust enough solution. Now, Chad Johnson, who hosts our Minecraft show, or his own Minecraft show, it's not even ours, uh, obviously was interested in the answer to this question, uh, came running over and says, well, if I just disable Java in the browsers, is that not enough? Um, I really think it probably is. And and that's what I would, you know, the, the way I've got, there are a couple of things that I'm using Java for, and I, I have my browser set up so that they will not run Java by default. So, so yes, um, just disabling it in the browser, and we, we've, we've discussed exactly this point before, I thought I would explore, you know, a little more of a containment solution, but... Yeah, as long as your browser won't launch it, that's where the exploits are, is from going to a page that invokes Java and and takes advantage of unpatched problems. And clearly, if uh, if it had a dozen or more exploits in, in the case of of, uh, of his uh, of Robin's kid's laptop, then that had happened in the future. I mean, had had, had happened in the past. So Box.net, Ubuntu or Mint, and yep. Minecraft for Linux. Yep. You're golden. All free. Yep. 
Yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. Uh, question number eight and leading us apparently into next week's cool topic. We have Craig Lewis in Wales of the United Kingdom asking DTLS. What is it? Hi, Steve. I've been a longtime listener from the very start. I've emailed before a few times. I've just run Windows Update, even though it isn't the second Tuesday yet. And there's an optional update. It adds support for something called Datagram Transport Layer Security in Windows 7. What exactly is it? Something to do with SSL? I wonder if this is something new and worth adding to Windows. Microsoft, as always, are very vague in their help and describing things. Maybe it warrants a topic? I have no idea. Thanks for your time and all the best. Thanks to you and Leo for years of what is great and a well-valued show. Craig in Wales. P.S. Spinrite is pure genius, and yes, I have purchased it. Well, that's a great question, and I think it's a great topic for a show. So next week, we will talk about DTLS, which essentially is its transport layer security for UDP datagrams rather than... Um, rather than TCP connections. Oh. And it was, des- it was designed specifically to be a, a very secure but more lightweight solution. Um, it looks like it's going to take hold. So that'll be what we talk about next week. Are, what, what's an example of somebody who would use this? Um, well, the, well, for example, um, uh, DNS is famously very lightweight but very insecure mm-hmm. in as much as even though you may have SSL connections for your data, your browser's queries to a DNS server are in the clear. There is no encryption for DNS. And, of course, we've talked about DNS curve, which adds encryption to DNS. You know, open DNS has a secure DNS. But, it, it, but using something like datagram um, transport layer security, DTLS, would sort of give you the best of both worlds. You'd, you'd be able to use a, a low-level, lightweight standard where you don't have to establish a connection first, yet still get privacy protection of the data passing in both directions. And the other advantages that SSL brings, like authentication. Right. Best of both worlds. I, I can't wait to hear more about it next week. Next week. Leo will be back then. Uh, Steve, it's been great doing these shows with you the past three weeks. Thanks for uh, letting me fill in. Has been, and it's been a pleasure for me too. I'm glad we were, you know, able to continue cruising forward, even when uh, his nibs is off cruising in, uh, the ocean. Cru- cru- cruising in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, GRC.com, of course, uh, the place to go. Any 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 new things people can look for? Anything you want to point them to in particular this week? Uh, just our regular, you know, remember that uh, grc.com slash feedback allows you to send stuff like we were just reading. Um, and uh, otherwise, I've got some stuff in the pipeline that I'll be talking about. All right. We'll keep an ear out, keep an eye out, and uh, keep listening. Security Now, of course, on Twit, twit.tv slash SN. It's live on Wednesdays. Uh, 11 a.m. Pacific is when they start to settle down in the chairs and talk some security. Like I said, Leo Laporte will be back next week. I'm Tom Merritt. See you later, folks. Thanks, Tom. Security Now.